We have a short but very potent text to look to today in Matthew 18, beginning at 15. I will admire the perseverance of our guests with the bell choir today who have to hear a, a sermon on a stern subject twice. I don't even want to hear myself preach twice, but so thank you for your, your kindness today in listening twice. Also, our new members class happened, you know, how do we say happened? In God's providence, our lesson was on the body of Christ, and about half of that lesson was about church discipline today. So the new members are getting a double whammy this morning on this subject. But we come, as we've been systematically looking at Matthew, to this important text. Last time, I examined verse 15 only. We go on today to hear some of the rest of it as this is Jesus speaking to us about how he wants his people to live towards one another. Listen carefully to God's word. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Father, help us to listen to this text without pride, without animosity, but with a wonder at the greatness of what you want to do within your church. To the glory of Jesus, amen. In my memory, I have a vivid picture of what I think is probably the most emotional human drama I ever witnessed in a church sanctuary. It was about 18 years ago in another state when I was a fairly relatively new pastor in that place. I had not been in the, pre- the presbytery, the regional gathering of ministers and elders, too many times there. So I was the new guy learning what was going on, and I showed up at a presbytery meeting in the state of Delaware thinking, routine day, business of the church. Well, there came on the docket a follow-up action to something that had happened earlier before I'd ever been there with a minister who had been censured for adultery. He was convicted of breaking up his marriage with an affair, and he carried that out in a very stubborn, unrepentant way. And so he had received, previous to my knowing anything about him, the highest church censure, suspension from the office of his ministry and excommunication from the fellowship of the church. Well, two years had passed, and now this man had approached the presbytery saying, if I could be granted it, I would like to speak to the assembled pastors and elders. There were probably about 150 of us there for that meeting. I don't remember everything the man said, but I cannot forget the first thing he said with a broken voice, 
hardly able to get the words out. He said, brothers, I have been in hell for two years. He went on to tell us how separated from the formal fellowship of the church, his own deception and denial had crushed him to the point where he had been on his face before God. And he wanted to come to us to tell us of the dealing God had had with him, to make a full confession and to ask for forgiveness. He knew that he'd done great damage to his former family, to his former congregation, to others who looked to him as an example. He couldn't undo all that easily, and he didn't come either expecting that we were going to restore him immediately as a pastor. That's possible, but only after a very long process. He just came to bow before God and his brethren in humble repentance. And that hour, immediately, forgiveness was granted him. Scores of men, I wasn't one who knew him, but scores were there who did know him, and they went forward and mass, and embraced him and extended a hand of fellowship to him. I can't even tell it to you unemotionally. It was a powerful moment. There wasn't a dry eye there, let me tell you that. It was an unforgettable scene because there was the outworking of Matthew 18 as Jesus Christ planned it for his church on earth. Sad and tragic as the things that led to that moment were, there was what you might call the best-case scenario for what discipline is supposed to bring about. Now, we don't often see it in the church. Many, many times when a censure is given and the person goes away and nothing is ever perhaps seen again of that particular incident or that sentence. Today we want to consider, I hope, you humbly and gently, but biblically, what is our calling as we try to restore those who have scandalously and with great difficulty assaulted the church and have not been repentant for it? Today, as I said before, is part two of dealing with this text. We spent the whole time just on verse 15 last time, this personal injunction to us to do what comes so hard for us that instead of going and telling everybody else what somebody's done to us or giving somebody the cold shoulder, to simply go to them and say, there's there's something between us. Can we talk and try to get an understanding here? And maybe maybe I've just misunderstood you or, or maybe we need to just straighten something out. We want to win our brother if there's a wall between us. I do urge you to, if you weren't here last time, I don't spend a lot of time advertising former sermons, but they're on CD, they're on our website. It's an important message. If you didn't hear that last time, I'd encourage you to to hear it. Because this is Jesus' seldom obeyed command. And it could make such a difference. I was deeply pleased, I must tell you, to to hear from four people distinctly of our congregation during the week by phone call or conversation who said, Pastor, just want you to know I did something. You got to me. <laughs> I did something about that sermon because there was something that I was leaving alone. God's desire is for believers in Christ to live holy lives, lives ordered by His Word, not perfect lives, 
set-apart lives, lives that have the standard of the Word of God held up to them, so that when we do sin, and we all will and we all do, we're going to be called to account for it, hopefully by our own conscience through the Holy Spirit. But if that doesn't happen, there might be those who would care about us enough to come and say, here's something that needs attention. Can we deal with this? And we do it, remember, with an awareness of what Jesus told us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, that we might have a great big log hanging out of our eyes, so be careful before you go after the speck. That didn't say don't ever go after it. It just said be careful how you go after it, that you make sure you know what's going on. Your attitude means everything. Well, Jesus was a realist. He knew how proud we are. He knows how deceitful we are, and quite often, this corrective is not going to bring about the desired result. He knew that. And so he gave us more here, at least in a general outline. He didn't give us all the, the detail. And in our denomination, we have a book of church order that has filled in a lot of detail of how you go about this and exactly the procedures you should follow to be fair and everything else. But he gave us the broad outline. He gave us the principles here of how to bring in, if we have to, mature believers from the fellowship of the church to discreetly take it another step. Now, I think we should understand we're talking about things that are relatively rare. This isn't, these next steps are not things we take for the little peccadillos of, of life. You know, there are things that you can just overlook, and you need discretion to know what those are. But these are things that are outstanding, that are strong. They may be grievous violations of a commandment of the Lord. They may be something that is a public scandal already that has to be addressed. Parents know how ugly the behavior of an undisciplined child can be. At least they should. Sometimes you wonder whether parents know this or not. But uh, they should know that a child with no discipline is a real problem. Churches without discipline are the spoiled brats of the ecclesiastical world. When obvious public sins are just winked at or, or worse, regarded as just being somebody's private business, or worse, just being regarded as acceptable behavior that God accepts in people's lives, those churches' light of truth and lamp of the gospel go out. Now, the American ideal, of course is rugged individualism. What I do is my business. You don't tell me what to do. But it's a sad thing when we take that completely into our behavior towards one another as believers. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, addressed that in a very explicit way. He said, you are not your own, or he meant to say, you do not belong only to yourself. In fact, you were bought with a price, and therefore you must glorify God in your body. Jesus Christ went to the cross for you. So you can't simply go through life and say, what I do is my business. Don't let any of this nosy preacher come and interfere. You can't say that. If you've stood before the congregation of believers and said, I am a child of God in Jesus Christ, I call him Lord, God's word is my principle, my authority, my directive, you no longer just belong to yourself. You're not an island anymore. You've been purchased. And those who've been purchased along with you ought to gently, carefully, considerately, compassionately, prayerfully be concerned 
about how to help you and encourage you and guide you, hold you accountable, if you will. So as we go here in these next steps in Matthew 18 this morning, and we're just really, again, gliding over things that could get even a couple more weeks' attention, but I'm not going to do that. I want you to remember that Jesus himself gave us these principles. And he said people of faith sometimes need a caring but firm corrective step in their lives. Why? Because he loves them too much for us to let them self-destruct in silence. First this, Matthew 18, 16 teaches us that spiritual leadership must intercede with unrepentant Christians. Now, again, we're talking about the more grievous type matter. If the offender will not listen to a private approach, Jesus said, take one or two others along so every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Nothing says there that those two or three, or the one or two extra, the total three, have to be church leaders or elders or pastors. Certainly in, in the practice of the church down through the ages, that's come to be where we usually look for people to do that because hopefully these are people who are sensitive and experienced and, and a little bit wise about these kinds of things. And maybe even people who the offender himself is going to respect. And they come not as the long-nosed judges that people like Nathaniel Hawthorne loved to paint in the Scarlet Letter, saying, you know, that his picture of the Puritans was that these all were, were deep hypocrites as they put judgment on a young woman and were hiding all kinds of sins themselves. Well, that isn't what the Puritans were, but Hawthorne had a problem. We're not like that, I hope. We're not supposed to be like that. Our goal is Restoration. Our goal is guidance, encouragement, calling to account. We want the person to somehow see what he's doing in the clear light of of Scripture and to stop hiding behind defensiveness and pride. And so we hope to be reconcilers, but that may not happen. If we're not reconcilers, at least we will be witnesses. This text says is a real point of more than one mind being applied to the issue so that we can sift whether it's, you know, maybe the accusation is wrong. Maybe the offender isn't really an offender. And somebody's just got a real problem, a grudge or something that they need to deal with. And hopefully the witnesses will figure that out and act as a safeguard of, against slander to someone. But it's an old, old principle, of course, in the Bible from Leviticus 19 onward that two or three witnesses are used to establish legal matters. But hopefully, if they're not biased people, their judgment is going to be sound and and right. I'm sure you might remember Ananias and Sapphira from the book of Acts, chapter 5. Talk about a dramatic scene. A husband and wife who joined in the ministry of the early church, they saw Barnabas sell some land and bring all the money spontaneously and say, well, here, use this for the ministry to the poor and so on. They thought, wow, I'm going to join the Platinum Club and get my name on the plaque. So they sold a piece of land, and they came and said, here's all the money we got from that sale. Well, you see, there was nothing wrong in them keeping part of the money, nothing whatsoever. They didn't have to give any of it, as a matter of fact. Well, they should have given their tithe, as the Scripture directs, but but they weren't obliged to give it all. But the problem was they came and said, here's the whole thing, and it was a lie. And they both were given the opportunity separately to say, was that the whole thing? Are you telling the truth? And they each separately said, yes, 
And guess what happened? Check Acts 5 if you don't know this story. Independently, they fell down dead. Wow. That was supernatural discipline. That was God getting the church's attention. That a profession of faith and saying you're going to follow your Lord has some responsibility. And we read there in Acts 5 that great fear fell upon the church. They said, whoa, (laughs) we need to respect this God. Lying to him, misrepresenting ourselves is a serious thing. Now, I think sometimes if people see that as the prime example or maybe one of the most dramatic examples of church discipline, they're led to say, well, discipline, and you know, we think of discipline, don't we? When parents discipline a child, what's the P word that they're doing? They're punishing, right? And so we think that's what discipline is. It's punishment from God. It's punishment from the elders. That's really a misconception because in just about every way, when the Bible holds this responsibility up, it's talking more about correction, redemption, guidance, reforming, and bringing you to repentance, not whacking you, you know, with a big stick. That's not what church discipline is. In fact, it's to be motivated by Christian love. You're trying to save somebody from the harmful consequences of their own proud, rebellious actions. The goal isn't to throw them out. The goal isn't to embarrass them. The goal isn't to shun them and never speak to them again. The goal is not to self-righteously play God over them. The purpose is to bring them back into a right relationship with Christ as their Lord and a right relationship with any people who they might have offended or wronged. I mentioned a minute ago our denomination has a book of church order which guides administrative procedures for leaders in the church, and one whole section deals with how to very carefully and fairly do the processes of discipline. There's a purpose statement in the beginning of that section of the book of church order, and it says that this is something to be exercised under a dispensation of mercy, not wrath. That's telling the elders. Make sure you don't run in just using your own anger here. It is systematic training, the book says, under the authority of Scripture. And here, the church is acting the part of a tender mother correcting her children for their good. I chose the hymn that we sang just before this message for the reason. Verse 2 is a wonderful verse when it says, O wind of God, Holy Spirit, come bend us, break us, Till humbly we confess our need. Then in your tenderness, remake us. That's what we're talking about. Sometimes a thing has to be broken so it can be remade. And that's what God wants to do. You remember an early example of church discipline before the church as we call it today existed back in the Old Testament days when King David was an adulterer and planned the murder of Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, his great sin in his life. Then he sort of covered it up, pretended it wasn't going on or nothing happened. Nathan the prophet came as the Sunday morning preacher, Saturday morning preacher, I guess, in those days. And uh, he told the little parable, you know, about the the man that had a hundred lambs and he stole the lamb from the one poor man. And David was all offended and said, oh, let me have that guy. Tell me his name. And Nathan said, you king, you're the man. That was church discipline. 
And it had a wonderful result. David stopped his deceit immediately. He bowed. He confessed. He opened his life to God. He said, oh, God, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And God began to redeem his life. And that's always possible, no matter what a person has done. But you see, if a Christian decides to resist every kind of overture from any other believer, then you've got the original fault, whatever it is. Let's say it's adultery. You've got that fault, but now you've got a compounded fault of stubborn obstinacy and a lack of humility before the Word of God, and it just builds. You see, it becomes this ugly, malignant thing that just grows. And the resistance to repentance is a greater fault eventually than the original sin was. But the person stonewalls and goes on. Spiritual leadership must intercede with unrepentant Christians. Secondly, we go to verse 17 here. And we're told, now, these are general directives, not real specific, but Jesus gave us the place to start at least. And he said here, if they're still unrepentant, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Here in the mouth of Jesus is the basic procedure of discipline, lacking all the specifics, just the general thing. He's saying the church must, if it If all else fails, the church must separate itself from an unrepentant member. He didn't really tell us what telling it to the church means. Well, there's a good reason for that, I think, because the whole structure of the church wasn't in place yet during the ministry of Jesus. The apostles later, as you know, put elders in charge of congregations and procedures gradually developed. And we can see some evidences of that in the later the letters and the book of Acts. But but all that's not in place yet. Jesus is just giving us the, the principle to start with here. And later the elders would come along as the prime leaders of every local congregation. It would be their responsibility, not one elder, not one pastor, the gathered elders acting as a body, praying, being patient, trying to be wise and deliberate, seeking to do this work of God. It's a hard work. Let me tell you, elders don't want to do it. None of us want to do it. But there are times when we can't avoid doing it. Jesus said if this non-repentance persists after multiple warnings, here's what the person has done. He has made himself into a kind of hypocrite. And he says, let him be regarded as a pagan or tax collector. He was speaking about the most despised kind of person. Not that you should despise pagans or tax collectors. He wasn't approving of the fact that pagans and tax collectors were often despised. But he was saying, if you think of the worst person you could think of who's not like you and not a part of you, let this person be regarded like that. And in the Greek, when he says, let him be regarded, that's called a present imperative, which is not a suggestion. It's a command. The unrepentant one has made himself an outlaw, a renegade, an outsider. And so all the church needs to do is recognize what he's done and ask, what fellowship can we have with such a person who will not listen to God and the voice of his word? 1 Corinthians gives us a good example of this going on. It's a little thing, but you can, you can see the principles at work. In 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man in Corinth. Paul doesn't elaborate too much, but he says, a man has his father's wife. You're assuming here's a man committing not just adultery but incest with his stepmother, and 
the problem was the Corinthian church was sort of saying, oh, well, you know, boys will be boys. I guess we can't do anything about that. Paul says, you are tolerating this. Stop it. And he gives them instruction. He says, hand him over to Satan so his sinful nature may be destroyed. But then he says, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. You see, he was interested in the man's redemption. Not just in excluding him or punishing him, but that he would be saved. And he's not going to be saved if nobody's willing to step up and say the hard thing. Hey, brother, you're way out of line with the word of God. Well, evidently they did that. And, you know, there's some delay between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In fact, we even think there was another letter in there that we don't have. It's alluded to in 2nd Corinthians. But anyway, some time has passed, and lo and behold, 2nd Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, it is implied that this man, you see, you see how the church works, you know? We, we don't get around to doing something, and then when we do it, we won't stop doing it. Because they had put him out, and Paul says, well, now I hear he's repented, and you haven't taken him back. By all means, open up your arms and take him back. He needs your fellowship. God has done his work there. Excommunication isn't forever. If he has repented, take him back. That's a wonderful example. It's just in many form of what we think Christ was intending. I want to remind you, we have a large class of new members right now. We're getting ready to interview next Sunday and see many come into our congregation. And those of you that have been in that class, many of you here, know that the class is kind of based around the vows that they answer when they become members. We want the vows to be something meaningful. Well, two of the vows are this in our denomination. One says, after you profess faith in Christ, you say, I will live my life in a manner becoming to a Christian. And then there's another vow that says, I will submit myself to the government and discipline of the church. By the way, uh, this is a long time ago. Ten years ago, we were teaching the new members class the same lesson that they heard today, and I got a call on Monday morning from a couple who had sat through nine classes or ten up to that point, and the lady said, well, I just called to say, we won't be back. I said, oh, what, you know, can you tell me about that? What's that about? She said, well, we're not going to join any church that goes around prying into people's private business and throwing them out. We never saw them again. I was glad they found that out, or at least their fractured version of what we said. They didn't listen very well to what we said. But I was glad they didn't join under the misimpression that every Christian is an island and can do whatever they please. The point is, when you take these promises, I will live my life as becomes a Christian, I will submit to the government and discipline of the church, did you mean it? Did you understand it? And if you did, how is it that the elders, not real often, but every once in a while, when we get involved in these painful matters, we'll have somebody telling us with clenched teeth, and great anger, will you please mind your own business? Sometimes with a curse attached or something not all that kind. One time I was told to take a long walk off a short pier. Okay? In Presbyterian practice, we've developed these things. So have other churches. It's a little different in different denominations, but there are different censures. And real quickly, the one is admonition, where the session says to someone, well, we've, we've looked at this. We think you're wrong, and we tell you in this letter that you need to change your way. 
And, and we may even be, be saying thank you that you have. That's the lowest level. Then the next level is suspension from the communion of the Lord's table. We say, look, your behavior is not that of a professing believer. We have to say that at least until you change, you need to step away from the Lord's table and not commune here. Or if they're an officer, they might be suspended from office. The final step is the grievous one that's done with tears. Excommunication, cutting off from membership. Now, the first two happen, and you don't always hear about it because that's private business. When the last one happens, you always hear about it. In the few times, six or so, in the 13 years I've been here, you hear about it because the body is told as a lesson, as a reminder. We are not our own. We are under the authority of the Word of God. The honor of Christ, the King of the church, is at stake, and we can't live any old way we want. It's not that a human elder or a minister or a whole session is your boss or your judge. Jesus Christ is your judge. We represent him only poorly, sinfully, ourselves. But Matthew 18, 17 says that elders who would hear your testimony and, and welcome you to the Lord's table and say, come, be a communicant member, might have the sad decision someday to say, you've cut yourself off, and for now you're not a communicant member. Let me use this analogy. When a patient has cancer, let's say a, a real malignancy, it's got to be a hard thing for a physician to address that patient and tell them what they've got, something that might kill them. And they probably don't want to do that. I mean, that's not a pleasant task to tell a person that. But what would you think of a physician who failed to do it? Who just said, well, I don't want to have that hard discussion. I'm not even going to tell them about their malignancy. You'd say, malpractice. Well, what do you think about a church that won't tell people the truth according to the Word of God? Malpractice. And such a church, by its laxity, brings disrepute on the gospel. Third and quickly, very quickly this morning as we close, verses 18 to 20 deserve more attention, but I see in them this principle. The authority of heaven, listen to this, the authority of heaven rests with Christian leaders who prayerfully follow the word of God. Here's what it says. Jesus, I tell you the truth, he said, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Maybe you've always thought that last statement was just some loosey-goosey, unhard-to-understand promise about prayer. Ask anything you want and get a friend to agree with you, and God's supposed to do it. No. When you read the Bible in its context, it's talking about this procedure. When the officers, when the leaders are in harmony with what the Word of God commands and see lives that are absolute renegades against that, they are merely stating that which God has already transacted in his own mind in heaven. Now, that's an awesome thing for officers of the church. It tells us we have to be very, very careful. We have to move slowly. We have to do it with prayer. We have to look at our own pride and our own sin. But when we've done all that, if we've acted biblically, the verdict we bring is a verdict from heaven. I want to ask you to believe this. A church that undertakes the solemn task of discipline is more loving 
in the long run than any congregation who, through its lax leadership, says you can profess Jesus as Lord and do whatever you want. Do you know what that congregation ends up doing, what that denomination do? I'll just watch the news every year when they have their big national meetings. It ends up spending all its national meetings talking about anything goes and how far does anything goes go. And it goes without limits. Because if you won't follow the Scripture, anything really does go. In a classic book called Life Together, the Lutheran pastor who was a World War II martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote this. It's right on target. Listen to this quote. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive is the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in that sin. For sin shuns the light. In the darkness, it poisons a person's being. It's in the light that we will break down that darkness and that seclusion. And so all that is secret and hidden has to be exposed. Bonhoeffer said it's a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted, but God is able to break down gates of brass and bars of iron. And sin that is acknowledged before Christ then loses its power over the one who is sitting with it alone in the darkness. And so he concluded at a later place in the book this word. He said, nothing then is more compassionate than the stern rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. This is not a light subject, is it? But professing believers sometimes need caring but firm correction because Christ loves them too much for us to allow them to self-destruct in silence. Father, we ask you to have the kind of church where this love could be real, not a church of mean-spirited, angry, self-righteous judgmentalism, a church where we care about each other, And so we try to tell each other the truth. That's the truth that makes people free. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for its light in dark places. Help us to shine it there. For Jesus' sake, amen. We are a bit late this morning. Let's sing just the first and last.